Hello, this is Mark Gerson, and I am the rabbi's husband, and I am so glad that everyone is here with us today. The goal of the rabbi's husband is to understand a verse, a passage, a story, or a lesson from the Torah, and to extract that learning, to apply it in our daily lives, with the idea that the Torah is the most relevant book ever written to help us live happier, better, and more meaningful lives in our time, whenever our time is. And I am so excited today to welcome our guest, Michael Eisenberg, to help guide us with a fascinating take through a passage in Genesis, or actually a series of passages in Genesis that Michael will talk about. Now, Michael is an extraordinary man. Michael is one of the most successful venture capitalists in the world, and he moved with his family from the Upper West Side of New York to Israel many years ago, and consequently, he has become one of the most important forces in Israeli business, building many of the iconic Israeli companies that are familiar to consumers all over the world, and in so doing, creating lots of wealth and tens of thousands of jobs while building the Israeli economy. In addition, he has built Israel with his extraordinary family. Michael, we're going to talk about this, but Michael has eight children and at age 50 is an experienced grandfather. So, Michael, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be on with you. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. Tell us about your Israel journey. When did you come to Israel? Why did you go to Israel? So my Israel journey uh, starts, I guess, when I moved here, but I'll, I'll back up two years. So I moved to Israel in 1993, six to eight weeks after getting married. We moved on August the 11th. We got married on June the 13th uh, of 1993. I graduated college. I think it was on May the 30th uh, of that year. And uh, my wife and I came with a bunch of duffel bags and uh, set up shop in Jerusalem, which was a wonderful place. I had a couple of aunts uh, who lived there and my grandparents visited frequently. But the kind of inspiration for my moving to Israel was was two years earlier. So I studied in the yeshiva uh, just outside of Jerusalem uh, between 1989 and 1991. I came for one year initially, but stayed a second. And the Gulf War, the first Gulf War happened in the second year uh, in yeshiva. And then the war came to an end actually on Purim Day of 1991. And some seven or eight days later, I find myself in a room with Rabbi Yehuda Mital, who is the uh, founder of the yeshiva and head of it. And uh, I asked him a question in Jewish law. I thought so, you know, because I was a yeshiva boy. And I said, uh, is there a bigger commandment to move to the land of Israel? And bear in mind, I was not planning on moving at that time. Uh, for someone who moves to Israel and settles in a more populous area like Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or a less populous area like the Galilee and the Negev, and he looked at me and said, it's all nonsense, real nonsense. What you need to do is move to Israel and set up a factory that'll employ 10,000 people to earn an honest and decent living. And I said, whoa. Um, first time I heard a rabbi talk about an honest and decent living. I'm sure the rabbi's husband talks about it, but the, but the rabbis didn't at the time. Wow. And I just said, oh my goodness, I need to make Aliyah, move to Israel and set up a factory that'll employ 10,000 people. Now we don't set up factories anymore. We do high tech. Right. That's kind of been my life mission is to create 10,000 plus because you got to move the goalposts all the time. Uh, Well-paying, honest and, and good living jobs uh, in Israel. And that's really the inspiration. I grew up in a Zionist home, but this was really the push I needed to come. Wow. Uh, what an extraordinary uh, encounter. And now you have uh, you have eight children? I do. Yes, we have eight children. How many are still at home? Boy, that's a tough question to answer. That's a tougher question than how many kids I have. <laughs> Why? 
Well, uh, my third one is getting married in about 10 days. So they're definitely out Mazel of the tough. house. Thank you. We've got uh, a boy in yeshiva and, and a girl studying Torah also, but they're kind of in and out. And then the three littler ones are at home. And how many grandchildren do you have? Three, thank God. Wow. Three grandchildren by age 50. Yeah. Listen, one of the things I always tell people, I speak a lot to high school kids, is, is get married young, have children young. It, it, it redounds, you know, in, in the United States now, the Atlantic's written about this. We're, we're running an experiment about kids growing up without grandparents or grandparents who are too old. And I think it's really important. Grandparents are really important for a lot of the topics we're talking about, which what is the family story from where did we come and what is timeless wisdom that we can connect uh, back to. Very interesting. So just tell us in a nutshell, because this isn't the, obviously the subject of the partial that you've chosen to speak about, but it's such an important, instructive and biblically informed subject. Why should people get married young? So we're incomplete. You know, modern zeitgeist is I need to feel complete and feel exactly I know who I am before I go find somebody else. And I think that's not true. I think we never fully figure out who we are, but the more we figure out who we are, it becomes harder to share from ourselves or of ourselves with somebody else. And we're better off growing with a partner. We're all better together. In business, we form partnerships. That's right. And in life, we form partnerships. And we need balance in life uh, from a partner, someone will hold a real mirror up to us in times where we're feeling too good about ourselves and we'll be there to support us when we're feeling less good about ourselves. And if you grow up together with somebody while you're unfully formed, together as a unit, you become stronger. And the second part is, I think when you have children young, we learn to love and accept people unconditionally, even if they're different. You know, we have eight children. They're all very different, even though they come from the same from the same gene pool. So you have to deal with this spectrum of different people and love them. And I think it teaches us tolerance of other people, uh, ability to love and to take care of people. And that's that's what we're here for. And the earlier we learn that lesson, the better off we are, better off we are in life. Fascinating. Well, I am so looking forward to transitioning now to the parts that you've chosen and the way that you want to discuss this, Parsha. So we're going to go now to Genesis, to mid-Genesis, Genesis 25, and we're going to discuss the occupational changes between Abraham and Isaac and between Isaac and Esau, and we're going to learn some biblical economics, which is precisely in conjunction with Michael's new and remarkable book, which we'll discuss at the end of the show, but it's called The Tree of Life, available everywhere. Michael, let's get into it. Tell us about the passage that you've chosen, why you chose it, and what we can learn about economics broadly defined from the Torah passage that we're going to discuss. So we need to set this up, first of all. We have a, a generational transition. There are multiple generational transitions that go on in Genesis, from Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to Jacob or Esau. And whereas from Abraham to Isaac, God tells him Isaac is going to be the chosen one, this seems to be less clear in the case of Esau and Jacob, the sons of Isaac. And we have a fascinating story that everyone kind of knows, but I'd like to read it a little differently. That is at the beginning or, or middle of, of chapter 25, these twins are born, Jacob and Esau, and they're kind of tussling in the tummy already. And the Bible tells us that Isaac prefers Esau. Why? Because he is a hunter in his mouth. What does it mean he is a hunter in his mouth? He is somewhat of a nomad. And Isaac likes that lifestyle. But we're not sure because the Bible has told us not soon before chronologically, but not soon after uh, textually, that Isaac is, is a farmer. He grows, he grows wheat outside of the territory of the Philistines. And so here comes uh, Esau back from the field. Everyone knows the story. He was a hunter. He comes back. He's, he's starving. He's thirsty. thinks he's going to die. And he runs into Jacob making lentils. Now, you ask yourself, why are lentils important to this story? Well, lentils are important or what the type of food is. Lentils are important because they're trellised, 
Lentils are important because there's something you don't plant like cucumbers for one season. You plant lentils for long periods, like you plant grapes for longer periods. It means you're settled down, right? So there's a big contrast in the story here between Jacob, who is settled down into the agricultural enterprise of his father, and Esau, who is a hunter. Jacob, it says, lives in tents. Doesn't that apply that Jacob is an intellectual? So the rabbis say that he's an intellectual based on that he lives in tents, based on later exegesis. But, you know, it just seems that he's, he's a simple person who lives in a tent, but meaning he's not out wandering, I think is the point. It's meant to contrast someone who stays in place with somebody who wanders. Someone who stays in place watches over his agricultural enterprise. You need to guard your fields, both from pests on four legs and pests on two legs. And, um, you know, it's, it's important to be there, whereas, whereas hunters or shepherds, by the way, for what it's worth, are wandering people. Now, Abraham, and this is important to know, Abraham uh, was a wanderer himself, right? He comes from outside of the land of Canaan. He comes to the land of Canaan, and he has mobile wealth. He has flocks, gold, and silver. He is a nomad. Esau reminds us more of Abraham than he does of Isaac. Isaac settled down. He changed the family business from being a shepherd to someone who has an agricultural enterprise. And here we find ourselves confronted with these twins, Esau and Jacob, sons of Isaac and Rebekah, one who's chosen the life of his father, Isaac. He is a farmer. He is cultivating the lentils. And one who has hearkened back to his, his grandfather's livelihood, which is to be a wanderer, whether it's a hunter or a shepherd uh, or whatnot. And this is what we're confronted this with. And Esau walks in and he says, I don't want to be the firstborn. And Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright, your firstborn birthright. And he says, sure, take it. Just give me the lentils because I'm going to die. Well, does Esau say, I don't want to be the firstborn? Or does Esau come in a momentary state of hunger, having come in from a full day's work in the fields, and Jacob realizes this is an opportunity to get the firstborn privileges by just satisfying his brother's momentary hunger, knowing that his brother will sell him eternity for a bowl of soup. So the the Torah itself says that Esau says, I'm going to die. I don't need this first, the right of the firstborn. And it also says that he embarrassed, slandered the right of the firstborn. Those, that's the text. Whether Jacob was devious here is interpretive, not what the text says. The text says that Esau did not need this. He said, I don't need this. He embarrassed it. He slandered the birthright. And so I think part of the reason is, is set up in this contrast, which is he wants to be a wanderer. And he looks at Isaac's wealth and says, yes, Isaac is wealthy, but it's the kind of wealth I don't want. I'm not in with this decision that Isaac made to settle down and create an agricultural enterprise. I don't want to be tied down to the farmer, to the slaves at the time, the workers who work the farm, to the need to kind of invest time to trellis grapes and trellis lentils. It's a it's a more stable livelihood, to, you know, or, or, or in place livelihood. To the same way you said about uh, Jacob being being a tent dweller, I got to stay in a tent, and I don't want to. I want to wander, says Esau. And what we see here encapsulated is a change in economics that changes family dynamics and requires a change in the types of livelihood people pursue. So if Abraham immigrated from the land of Haran to the land of Canaan, he needed mobile wealth. Isaac, who wasn't allowed to leave the land, he couldn't go down to Egypt during the famine, said, oh, if I got to settle down on this land for a long time, I want something that takes root. That's agriculture. Agriculture takes root. And now the question is, are we here to stay or are we still immigrants, uncertain and mobile people? And Jacob says, we're here to stay. It turns out to be wrong in the end for different reasons. We're here to stay. I'm going to continue the agricultural enterprise. 
And Esau says, I long for the days of Abraham. I want to be a nomad. And in, this is highly relevant to today. Um, why is this highly relevant to today? Because if you think about traditional communities of faith, we have traditional professions uh, for the most part. You know, I, I got asked before I was getting married whether I was going to go get an education, be a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever. I said, no, I'm you know, going to do something entrepreneurial, go into business. So don't you want something to fall back on? And I think, you know, for, for the Jewish experience, at least in America, there were kind of traditional professions. You wanted to be a professional, an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, uh, et cetera. But times they are changing just like they did then. And and technology has taken over and technology is inherently more risky. It's different than what my parents did. Uh, by the way, in some bizarre way, it, it harkens back to the old immigrant generation and, and change happens. And the big question is, do we adapt? Do we adapt professionally to changing circumstances, to changing geographies, to changing technologies in order to do that? And that's the question confronting the Bible here. Esau who had a lifestyle, was unwilling in order to inherit the first birthright, the birthright of the firstborn, he was unwilling to hew the new family line that we have an agricultural enterprise to run the land of Israel and that we're here to stay. He kind of still wanted that nomadic lifestyle of, of his grandfather, whereas Jacob's willing to settle down and do this. And this is a source of great tension. Very interesting. But what do you make of the fact that when Jacob has to go into exile as a result of the possible ruse that his mother engineered to trick his father into giving him the blessing. When he has to go into exile, uh, his father gives him a blessing. Wealth is not mentioned in the blessing. Oh, it most definitely is. Where? We need to remember something very important. Jacob gets the blessing that was intended for Esau. Right. And this is actually super important. I, and I cover this in the book. It, uh, Isaac says, God should give you from the dews of the heaven and the fatness of the earth, right? This is an agricultural blessing. Isaac is attempting to get Esau to settle down so he can give him the firstborn because Isaac understands that you need to stay in the land and stay in the land. We need farmers. We need agriculture in order to do that. So the blessing to the intended firstborn is to continue the family enterprise to settle the land. And that is agriculture rather than hunting. So he gives him the blessing to be a successful farmer. In, in Hebrew, it says, Verov dagan v'tiroshin, you should have lots of grain and grapes. And so that is an agricultural blessing. Jacob gets it, but it's intended for Esau. Very interesting point. But why doesn't he send him out with any money? So Abraham was a very wealthy man. We know that from the story with Lot, among other stories. Isaac was doing well for at least a period when the Bible tells us that his wealth grew a hundredfold and he had that conflict with the Philistines and digging his father's wells. And then uh, when it comes to his son having to go into self-declared exile, he doesn't give him any money. And one would think that if you have to exile your son to go stay with your brother-in-law who you've never seen and who your son has never met, you would give him a lot of money if you're wealthy. But Jacob goes out alone with nothing. So you just stuck your head into a giant argument between two medieval exegetes, between Nachmanides ah. and Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, which I also cover in the book and, and which I'll answer your question after I give you the preamble. So Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra says that the reason that Esau rejected the birthright was because Isaac was poor and he blew the family business and Abraham's family wealth. And by the way, Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra himself was poor and destitute. He describes this in his exegesis all the time. So it would be fair to say he might see Isaac through his own lens. Uh, and he says that it was actually understandable what Esau did. He said, there's nothing to inherit here. Isaac blew the business and we're done. Nachmanides literally calls Ibn Ezra uh, he says, who blinded him? And he says, it can't be because the blessings to the forefathers included material wealth. 
And it's a fundamental part of the blessings of the forefathers. So it cannot be that Isaac was poor. And the way I solve this in the book is that it is true that Isaac was poor from Abraham's kind of wealth, which was mobile wealth, being you know a shepherd and, and gold and silver, but he became wealthy agriculturally. And this leads to the answer to your question, which is he didn't send Isaac away with anything because it was all tied to the ground. It was an agricultural enterprise. And who knows what season it was when he sent him away. And so he fled the family business, which is literally rooted in the ground, and didn't have what to give him because there was no mobile wealth. And in fact, uh, Jacob himself, when he recreates or creates his own wealth in the house of Laban, it is all shepherding wealth. It's flocks. It's mobile wealth, not rooted wealth. That's kind of one of his lessons. Yeah. Fascinating. And and in ancient economics, are you saying it would have been impossible to generate some mobile wealth from some fixed wealth? Like, for instance, right now, if you're rich in real estate, you can get a mortgage, take out some cash. It's mobile wealth. Not very complicated, not very interesting. But there was no ancient equivalent. So are you saying that Isaac was a very wealthy man in land, but there was no mechanism to extract any mobile wealth to give to his son as he went into exile? I think there's two possible explanations here. I think one is he didn't want to have mobile wealth because he really wanted the family to stay in Israel, uh, in the land of Israel, land of Canaan. Well, but his son has to go into exile. So he, he might have wanted that, but he knows his son has to leave. Yeah, but he wants to make sure he comes back to pick up the family business. He wouldn't have been the first patriarch of a family to say, hey, if you want to be in the family business, stay in your home. He wouldn't have been the first one to say that, even in modern times. And so, but the, the second thing is, in addition to that, it's not clear that what the season was and whether you can transform it into mobile wealth. What's really interesting is that Jacob, when he returns 21 and a half years later, let's say, to the land of Israel, he turns in uh, his mobile wealth right. for a piece of land outside of Shechem, right? He buys a piece of land outside of Shechem. He uses what the Bible calls kisita. And kisita, Rashi explains, is, is uh, actually money. But I think the better explanation comes from uh, Unculus, who describes it as herds. And he trades in his mobile wealth for that. And I think that's very symbolic. I cover that in, in the book as well. Interesting. So what is it symbolic of? That he wants to be rooted in the land of Israel. He wants to trade in mobile wealth of the, of the nomad, of the exile, for somebody who says, I've come home. Interesting. And I also think for what it's worth that when you buy land uh, around a major city, you indicate that you're here to stay and you want to trade with the local population so you're not running away. But that doesn't work out either. Jacob's full of kind of things that were supposed to work out but don't work out. But that, they will need another hour for that. Getting back to the beginning of the story with Esau and Jacob. So when Esau comes in from the field, he's very hungry. I believe now you obviously know the Hebrew. The expression is not give me lentils to eat, but pour it down my throat. No, that's in the uh, commentaries. That's not in the text itself. That's that, that, that's not how you would translate it? I don't think so. No, it's haliteni mina doma doma right? It's pour me from this red lentil soup, but it could be into my bowl. It could be uh, into anything. It means to pour. It doesn't necessarily mean down the throat. Okay. Interesting. Now I believe, and I don't know this from firsthand experience, but I believe that in cooking lentils, the more you cook them, the less red they become, implying that Esau was just so ravenous and so unable to uh, delay his gratification, even for a few minutes, that he said, just pour it. Now, maybe it's not down my throat. Maybe it's pour it in a bowl. Fine. But I don't even need it cooked. Just give it to me. Yeah, he's definitely hungry and wants it right now. 
wants it right now, thus educating his mother and probably or should be his father that somebody who wants something right now and is willing to trade eternity for right now is someone unqualified to be the leader of the Jewish people in perpetuity, as his firstbornhood otherwise may have meant? The answer to that, I think, is yes. But in all these things, it's like your framing. is how do you value things, right? If you had a high-value view of the family uh, legacy and the family business, he probably, even was running in, he really kind of held it together for another couple of minutes, right? But he, he probably didn't value that. Right. And number two, temperamentally, to the point I think you're making, he probably is ill-suited to be someone. We need, we need perspective in life. And perspective comes from kind of weighing your thoughts and waiting a little bit before we respond. And, and he obviously wasn't temperamentally well-suited for that. And delaying your gratification. Yes, absolutely. So uh, just getting back to the very interesting dichotomy that you uh, taught me, and I suppose most of the listeners about, between Ibn Ezra and Nachmanides, about did Isaac blow the family business, which is how I read the text, or is that, as Nachmanides said, uh, completely wrong? Nachmanides said in modern terms, basically, Ibn Ezra, what is he smoking, right? No question. Uh, Nachmanides is pretty harsh towards the Ibn Ezra. What side are you on? Well, but I, I, as I mentioned, I'm in the middle. I, I think that Isaac transformed the family business and changed it in order to adapt to the times and adapt to the fact that he wanted to settle down and have the family settle down in the land of Israel and understood that shepherding, herding flocks was a bad way to go do that. And so he was poor in the sense of the kind of riches that Esau wanted or Abraham had, but he was wealthy in the kind of riches that you need in order to be a, you know, call it a, uh, a well-settled enterprise in a land that you're going to stay in for a long time. That's my view of it. So your interpretation of this story as one of the imperative of being open to transformation is so original and so interesting. And I, I think everyone can now see why this book is going to be such a major success, the uh, Tree of Life. And your personal experience also really illustrates it, because when we were young, this was still the Jewish um, ideology, which is that you should become a professional, a lawyer, as you said, a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, maybe a banker, but some kind of profession. And as you said, uh, and you were one of the people who, who pioneered this, that changed. But I use changed in the past tense. Jewish parents no longer say that to their children, as they did a generation ago. You now have eight children. I guarantee you that you've never told one of your children or one of your children-in-law that you should become a doctor, lawyer, banker, some profession rather than something more entrepreneurial. What? So now that that's changed, what do you think the next transformation is? How should young people think about the notion of economic transformation in their lives? So first of all, I think it's partly changed, not fully changed. I, I think depending on where you are uh, on the religious spectrum Interesting. of the Jewish people and, and probably other communities of faith, um, you're either slower or faster to adapt to this. And I'll remind you, we're like 30 years into uh, this digital transformation almost at this point. And we're just talking about in the last four or five years, what I would call Jewish families moving over to this in a meaningful sense. And I still think in many, many families, getting the safe profession is important. So that's point one. I think you and I happen to know a lot of the people who have been early adopters of this. And you know, I was fortunate enough to be fall into it early. I don't think it's true across the spectrum. Like I always say about software markets, they tend to be bigger than you think they are. Um, I think the, the range of Jewish experience is wider than you think it is uh, in this regard. And you know, maybe we have a small sample size. Uh, I think the next transformation, for what it's worth, is, is into areas that are kind of out there on the scientific edge, but they're going to transform ever more industries. So number one, things around healthcare, which is heavily regulated, but is going to be transformed by innovation. And that's two kinds of innovation, both digital innovation and things like synthetic biology are coming for these 
you know, traditionally, you know, a lot of Jewish people in the nursing home business. There's a lot of people in, in, in the medical profession, but we got to get out on the bleeding edge of this. I agree. Because that transformation is going to happen faster. Uh, ironically, you mentioned banking. I, I think digital currencies are a big, big deal and are coming uh, meaningfully. And I think material science is going to be a big deal going forward also, particularly as we start to deal with things around the climate and food generation. And ironically, for our story of Isaac, agrotechnology is going to be a big deal. And I chair an organization in Israel called the Shomer Chadash, the New Guardians. And we're spending a lot of time in addition to protecting farmers and ranchers and bringing farmhands in agrotech, because we think this is a place where Israel can lead off. And I just got off literally a Zoom right before this uh, with the food security ministry of uh, the UAE, United Arab Emirates. Um, and we've been exploring some joint partnerships there. In fact, the ministress, uh, Her Excellency Mariam, the food security minister of, uh, of the UAE, came to visit our high school, our Shomer Khadash high school called Adam Adama Man and Land in Israel to talk about agrotech partnership. That's what we had a follow up on. So I think those areas are really, really important and will be going forward. Very interesting. Uh, now, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. I think you're absolutely right. But what would you advise a young person? Is there a tension with young people today as they consider those fields that you talked about and more traditional fields, whatever more traditional fields are now, because there's been so much change in the generation of in the lifetime of young people today? Or are young people, as they should be, free to embrace these cutting edge fields and to go into them without the need to think that they should have a profession or they should have something to fall back on as long as they have the infrastructure to fall back on, the, the education, the work ethic, the biblical ethics? This is what to fall back on. Is that the ideology right now? Or are they are they still dealing with the tensions that people did a generation ago? So I think, you know, when you mention things like synthetic biology or, or agrotech and playing with nature and, and materials, I, a lot of what I talk about in the book, in the Tree of Life and Prosperity, is uh, the need to put a principles framework, an ethical framework around a lot of these innovations. In, in one of the uh, cases I talk about, Noah who, in addition to inventing the plow, seems to have invented fermentation. And when he invented fermentation uh, and created wine for the first time in the Bible, and wine is great. It it not only gladdens the heart, but it's like the water of old because it was clean because it was alcoholic and it didn't become brackish and, and, and bad for you. But Noah got drunk and was abused by his son. And if Noah got drunk and was abused by his son, it's because he didn't put a principles framework around something that could be used for good and used for bad. And we need that same principles and ethics framework around things like synthetic biology and digital currencies and material science going forward now, and even space exploration, by the way, which is another big one. And so I think that's really important. We need to teach kids to the point you made right at the beginning of the show about the timeless values of the Torah and of the Bible in guiding modern problems. That's why I tend to do it. Uh, in the book. And the second thing is we got to tell kids it's okay to fail. A little bit worry about the notion of fall back on. Fall back means I got a safety net, which is okay. What you really want is it's okay to fail. Keep working at it. Be optimistic. You know, I was telling a young a young guy yesterday, he's 23, just got out of one of Israel's elite military units. I said, if you're a pessimist, you become a journalist. If you're an optimist, you can become successful. And I think it's uh, it's really true. And we, we need to tell these kids, keep going, keep going. It'll get better. You'll do better. And uh, and you may fail on the way. These are hard problems, but let's solve them. Let's make sure we have an ethical and principled anchoring for it. Right. Brilliant. Well, Michael, thank you so much for such a fascinating and completely original take on this uh, incredible story here in mid-Genesis, uh, which I've read many times, but I've never heard it read about it or conceived of it in the way that you just explained and taught me and everyone listening. So the last question on the rabbi's husband always goes from 
one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he opens the book by saying, uh, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Michael, in all of your years as one of Israel's leading business creators, innovators, and job creators, what are two things that you have learned about humankind? When I when I released the Hebrew version of this book, which became a bestseller, I did a evening with Rabbi Benny Lau, and he said, "What I learned from your book is that people don't change, and human challenges in human nature have been the same for millennia." And that's one thing I've learned is that there is timeless wisdom because people don't change actually. The same human challenges that confronted our forefathers confront us today. And that's one thing uh, I've learned. And the second thing I've learned, maybe the opposite of the priest in this case, and relates back to what I said before, is that uh, optimism is a winning strategy. And part of the reason, reason that optimism is a, is a winning strategy is because there's a lot of unknown in the world. The world is full of unknowns. And if we're optimistic about it, we can embrace it and jump into it. And we can kind of lean in rather than you know taking a step back when we see uncertainty. And you become more successful if you're able to jump into uncertainty uh, and make bets. By the way, going back to the beginning of the show, I think having children is an expression of optimism about the future. If we look about a lot of kind of the zeitgeist of the New York Times recently, you know, people think the world's coming to end from climate change. We say, don't have children. What does that tell me? I'm pessimistic about the world. I'm not having children. Right. So having children is a defiant display of optimism about the world. And uh, I'm a rational optimist, a very rational optimist, to paraphrase the, the title of Matt Ridley's excellent book. Um, but I'm very optimistic and I think people should be optimistic and that's a better way for humanity to go forward. What a brilliant insight is that if the world is full of uncertainty, we have a choice. We can recoil from the uncertainty and that takes the formation of fall back on things, or we can jump into the uncertainty. And what you're saying is we have a choice. I have put before you a blessing and a curse. This is such, this is one such a choice. And what you're saying is acknowledge the uncertainty and jump into it. And getting back to what you were saying earlier in the conversation, this isn't just about economics and job choice, although that's an important part of it. It's also a, a, a question of marriage. When you marry somebody, what's ahead, it's mostly uncertainty. Totally. And we have people looking for certainty in getting married. You know, my wife, I don't think will be upset at me saying this, but we didn't know a lot about each other when we got married, it turns out. You think you did, but we really didn't. But it's okay. You discover things together in the same way in a business partnership you do. And when you invest in a company, you discover things over time. You know, and, and that process of discovery is in itself enriching. Um, and you jump into that uncertainty and you embrace it and you embrace the partner with whom you do it with. That's right. And when uh, Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for Isaac, the servant, probably Eliezer, uh, he only knew two things about Rebecca before he determined she was completely qualified to be the wife for Isaac. He knew she was very beautiful and that she was extraordinarily generous because she kept giving him all the water and watering the camels. That was it. She's beautiful. There'd be that attraction. And she was a good person. And then they should get married. That's it. 
The rest was uncertainty and it was all good. It's enough. It was all good. It's really, it's, it's not just good enough. It's great. You grow up together. It's just such a wonderful process of exploration. So embrace the uncertainty, whether it's in commerce, in business, in marriage, just acknowledge the uncertainty. By the way, there's nothing else. It's all uncertainty. There's so much uncertainty in the world. You know, during COVID, I, I gave a series of lectures in the army and in other places. I asked people right at the beginning of COVID, literally a month in, why are you wearing a mask? That was like my, my favorite question. And everyone said, oh, because it reduces my possibility of getting COVID. And I said, do you know that? There's like not enough data. How do you know? He says, no, no, because you, know, you have to manage the risks. I said, no, because it's uncertainty. And the cost of wearing a mask is peanuts. Price potentially or cost of getting COVID is dramatic. So in uncertainty, make a bet, small bet. And so we need to embrace it and just jump in. Right. What's your expected return? Yeah, exactly. Is it Or is it asymmetric? I think we spend too much time doing risk management, not enough time jumping into uncertainty and embracing. Right. What a beautiful, magnificent, and such an important insight to conclude with. And Michael, thank you for sharing that with me and with our audience. And uh, God bless you and your businesses and your incredible family. And uh Everyone should go out and get Michael's book, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis, available on Amazon and presumably bookstores near where everybody is. But The Tree of Life and Prosperity by Michael Eisenberg, everyone should order it. And uh, the wisdom that Michael shared today and so much more is in this incredible book. So uh, read the book. And Michael, thank you for uh, coming on to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. And I just want to thank you in general for being such an inspiration to, to all of us, both in your charitable work and your podcast and your, your Jewish commitment and uh, in helping me also with my book. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. And God willing, I'll be able to get to Israel sometime soon uh, and uh, we can get together in person. Awesome. This was so much fun. Thank you. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Michael Eisenberg is such an inspiration in so many ways. He is an extraordinary, successful businessman who has done it with a Zionist heart. He has created so many jobs, so much wealth, so much opportunity in Israel while creating Aleph, one of the great venture capital franchises in the world. And simultaneously, he's a great biblical scholar and an intellectual. And his book, uh, The Tree of Life, is a gift to all of us. And his appearance on the podcast is too. So I just so much appreciate Michael, appreciate his friendship. I've had the opportunity to study the word of God with him on this podcast, and it's such a blessing. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Michael, for participating. And next year in Graceland. I would like everyone who listened to this podcast and previous podcasts and God willing future podcasts to go to the rabbishusband.com and to sponsor a surgery. These are surgeries of mothers and children in Africa whose lives you can transform or save by sponsoring a surgery that is all curated, all selected, all monitored, and all administered by African Mission Healthcare, which are Christian surgeons working in Christian hospitals serving people of all kinds all throughout Africa. So go to therabbishusband.com where you'll see a link to sponsor surgeries for those who need it most. And Erica and I are going to match every donation made up to a million dollars. So just write in the subject line, the rabbi's husband and uh, God willing, let's save some lives together. I'm Mark Erson and this has been The Rabbi's Husband and thank you for listening. Please go to Apple, to Spotify, to wherever you receive podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. I can be found at therabbishusband.com or at The Rabbi's Husband on Facebook or Instagram. And I would love to hear from you. So please email me 
at mark at the rabbi's husband.com.